Kazakhstan is one of the 10 largest countries in the world, yet most Americans couldn't find it on a map. Today, the former Soviet Republic is a secular and anti-Islamist Muslim-majority nation, yet most Americans have no idea we have friends there. Previous American presidents have largely ignored Kazakhstan and Central Asia, but President Trump has made a little pivot to the region. To learn more about this intriguing and distant corner of the world, we are joined by Svante Cornell, director of the Central Asian Caucasus Institute at American Foreign Policy Council. This is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. So people who watch TV probably know a little bit about what's going on in the Middle East and Europe. People who read newspapers, maybe they know a little about also what's going on in Asia. People have to focus a lot more, read a lot more widely, get a little more wonky in terms of what they're doing if they want to learn about Africa, Latin America. In fact, I think most people listening to this podcast couldn't name most of the countries of Central Asia. Let's give them a moment to try to do that. Do, 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 do. Okay, if you haven't done it, I'm going to ask Svante Cornell, who is a specialist in Central Asia, what are the countries of Central Asia that, with, that, that you have been studying for a very long time? So I think uh, a lot of American servicemen have flown right over many of these countries on the way to Afghanistan, and that's one of the things that makes this, uh, this region important to American interests, which is that after 9-11, uh, it was either Pakistan, which is not necessarily the most friendly country, the other way to get into Afghanistan was from the north through the, the Central Asian countries. Now, Afghanistan itself is very often considered South Asia, but if you look at a map, it really isn't South Asia. It's part of Central Asia. Historically, it's always been. The other thing I want to say is people may think, well, these countries um, haven't played a huge role in history. Actually, that's not the case, as you pointed out. And I should mention Frederick Starr, a co-author on a very fascinating new paper that you've written, um, points out. Frederick Starr also has written a book that I found absolutely uh, fascinating about the history of Central Asia um, during what he calls a period of enlightenment. Yes. Uh, comparable, now I'm being serious here, comparable to the enlightenment mm -hmm. of Europe uh, that, again, almost no one knows about. It's unfair to ask you, but spend a few minutes talking no, about this. No, I mean, the, the, the thing is that uh, what Fred points out in his book, which is called Lost Enlightenment, Lost Enlightenment. Uh, is that we have, you know, some people will know that, you know, uh, algebra comes from an Arab guy by the name of Al-Jabr, and there are a bunch of Arab, quote-unquote, uh, mathematicians and scientists uh, who uh, rediscovered some of the Greek works and built on them back a thousand years ago. Well, we only know these people as Arabs because they wrote in Arabic. They were not Arabs. They were mainly Persian speakers from, from present-day Central Asia. And it was a place uh, that up until the Mongol invasions in the 13th century or even earlier, um, had, uh, had a remarkable degree of religious freedom um, and had, you, you could see in this region, a mix of both 
religious debate and religious scholarship, but also science um, and art being developed to levels way beyond what was the case in Europe at the time. Yeah, Europe, it was hundreds of years before Europe Absolutely. even caught up yep. to what happened in this era. And this, and this was in the Middle Ages. This is after Islamic armies, Arab armies, sprung out of Arabia in the seventh century. They, did, they went in two directions. They went west, where they destroyed the Roman Empire. They went east, destroying the mighty Persian Empire, and took over these places. But then, as you say, just because people were speaking Arabic doesn't mean they were Arab any more than everybody who was writing and speaking in Latin. The exactly. educated classes of Europe were all Latins. We don't right. we don't talk about that. If they were that 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 was simply the the lingua franca or of of the educated and elite classes. And again, they they had great cities. Um, as Fred Starr points out, we don't know that because those cities were not were often not made of stone and didn't last. So that it's hard to find Merv. Or people have heard Balch, of Bukhara, yeah. Yeah. maybe places on the Silk Road. You know a lot about yeah. that. Places like Samarkand, mm-hmm. Tashkent. They may have heard of them, but they don't know much. And I'm not saying there's nothing to see, but there aren't the kind of ruins you would have in Greece or, or Rome, for example, or had until very recently in Syria. It looks like you're going to disagree oh, with no, me, which you're welcome to do. <laughs> I want you to please disagree with me. I like a good I fight. Will, I won't disagree. I'll just say that there are a lot of ruins, but the problem is location. I mean, this, this area, first of all, is landlocked. One of the major characteristics of Central Asia is that it's landlocked. It's very far from the oceans. It, I was going to say it's not on, on the way to anywhere. It's flyover country in a way, actually, mm. to use the American expression. A lot of people flying between Europe and Asia, uh, between, say, uh, France or the UK and China, will fly over Central Asia. But nobody stops there, As, except if you're in the part of you know, the ecotour- booming, actually, ecotourism industry that is trying to, to rediscover this region for people who are tired of the beaches of Bulgaria or Turkey, Greece or something, and who've already done the Greek or Italian ruins. Now they're, uh, they're actually increasingly moving. But, you know, it's been 25 years only since these countries have been independent. Uh, and I think one of the things we in the West grossly underestimated was the Soviet hangover. Mm. We call it the Soviet hangover because it's, it's uh, something, you know, the Soviet Union is gone, but the mental effects of what happened over 70 years is not. The, the systems of government, the uh, visa restrictions, the corruption, the authoritarianism, all of these things uh, don't get erased overnight. Uh, they're gradually coming to terms with some of these issues, but even getting to some of these countries are, uh, has been difficult. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Now, just for a little more background, when we say these people were not Arab, we should say what they were. These were, in some cases, um, people of Persianate, sort of sort of Persian background, Turkic background. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other cases, um, many were uh, nomads of the steppes. People yep. hear about the steppes, don't know what, what they are. They're great, vast grasslands mm-hmm. that one can travel over rather rapidly once one manages to domesticate horses, and particularly once one can ride a horse and fire a bow and arrow uh, atop it without holding on to the reins. That's quite tricky to do, but historically, amazing once that was conquered, once once those skills were learned by people like Genghis Khan, who may have been, who was was born in the steppes for sure, and may have been born in in part of Kazakhstan, though his background is Mongol. Yeah. Um, though, and we're going to get to this too, or we're jumping ahead, the, the people of Kazakhstan, the Kazaki people, they are probably a mixture of Mongol and Turkic tribes, uh, nomadic yeah. going back. And some would say, ah, my lineage goes back directly to Genghis Khan. People say that all over uh, the Central Asia, uh, but in a remarkable number of cases, it happens to be true. Yes, I think, uh, without going too far now, I think there is even evidence that uh, from, you know, gen- uh, 
genealogic testing that a remarkable number of people on the Eurasian continent can trace their lineage back to one single person, which is Genghis Khan. He was very active and not just in warfare. And so were his sons and so on, yeah. But um, I think the the, the point here is that uh, in in Central Asia, more broadly, uh, is a place that, that played an important role, as you mentioned, during the uh, during the in history before the uh, the great city states that existed in this period that Fred calls the last enlightenment was destroyed uh, and it wasn't really so much destroyed I mean the Mongol invasions played a part of it but the rise of of, of seaborne trade was really what what destroyed the the uh, the richness uh, of Central Asia because it was a remarkable rich area the cities that you mentioned Bukhara Samarkand but also those in northern Afghanistan today like Balkh was probably the largest city in the world. It's now the name of a province of, of Afghanistan, but there's no city left. But there are huge ruins that are uh, enormous uh, and very well-organized cities, um, very developed. But it Irrigation was Irrigation systems, for example, that were absolutely. highly sophisticated, akin to what the Romans did. Yes, and it was all built on trade. That was where the, uh, the money came from. But with the rise of trade across water, that gradually disappeared because of obviously that was cheaper and safer because especially with the political fragmentation, uh, it was it was increasingly dangerous to trade across Eurasia by land. So the uh, the fascinating thing today, what you're seeing is the the, the return and the rise again uh, of trade. Not perhaps between Amsterdam and Shanghai, but if somebody, let's say, in Prague wants to ship some get something sh- shipped from Western or Central China, they're rediscovering the land trade routes across Central Asia again. Mm-hmm. Of the various stands, uh, and I know you've, you've studied them all and probably you've visited them all, uh, the, your most recent paper is, a, is on Kazakhstan. Um, first of all, tell us where people can find that paper because if they get interested from this conversation, they should Absolutely. be able to read it. Absolutely. We, uh, we, we publish it on our website, which is called silkroadstudies.org. Uh, on which you can find at which you could find uh, almost everything we do. All right, and by the way, I should also say my interest has been longstanding, but it's been peaked because I recently went to Kazakhstan. I re- wrote a piece for the Washington Times on that. It's available on the FDD website or the Washington Times website or pundicity.com, a number of other places. Um, Kazakhstan is partic- is of particular interest for a number of reasons. Um, let me ask you what those are and see if you mention all the ones that I think that <laughs> Well, I think th- the easiest answer is that Kazakhstan is the biggest of the Central Asian countries, but only by It's, it's huge. By the way. It's yes, huge. it's huge. Yeah, it, it's as pr- pretty much as big as Western Europe. People yeah. have no idea, and yet most people would have trouble finding it. Well, you know, that. the funny part about that is that uh, um, Kazakhstan is often considered Asian, and it is in many ways Asian, but if you look at the, ter- the, 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 the portion of Kazakhstan's territory that is in Europe, which means west of the Ural Mountains, that's actually bigger than Germany. Mm. It's one-tenth of the country's territory only, but that's bigger than Germany. And it has borders, of course, with Russia. It has a border with, of course, China. Yes. To the south, it not uh, right on the border, but close by are Turkey and Iran, uh, both of which I would say have hegemonic ambitions. Uh, it's in a danger, bit of a dangerous neighborhood in, in, in that sense. I mean, Russia has, after all, uh, chewed off parts of some of its neighbors, Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, China's, uh, I think, form of imperialism is more economic than it is geographic, yes. although there is both of the case. Uh, there's a well, reason they— Step by step. Step step by step. They do have Uyghur territory they will not, to which they will not give serious autonomy, much less independence. They do have Tibet, which they control, which mm-hmm. is a separate culture— and 
in a separate nation that is under its control. So they do have their own, and they would, and, and of course they believe that Taiwan is is theirs as well. So they do have geographic colonialism sure. as well as economic. So they're in a, so it's a precipitous situation in that sense, a dangerous situation over the past twenty five years for Kazakhstan. Well, it is, and all the more so because at independence, it was probably the weakest of all the countries be for several reasons. One, because at independence, only about 40% of Kazakhstan's population were, were Kazakhs. This is an amazing thing. The yeah. Kazakh, I just I want people to just reflect on that. At independence, the, 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 the majority, the, no, the, the group for which this country is named, they were a minority. And they I were a minority, and the Russians were almost as numerous. Now that has gradually changed with out-migration of Russians. But there is a reason for this. It's not that the country's borders were drawn strangely, although there are parts you could argue about. There were large Russian minorities. But that's because of two things. One is that in the Soviet period, especially under Khrushchev, there was this virgin land campaigns where enormous amounts of Russians were encouraged to migrate into the steppes of Central Asia and try to cultivate wheat on them. But the major thing is that we know, some people know about what happened in Ukraine during the collectivization with Stalin, where uh, a big chunk of the population was killed by these politically induced uh, starvation, Talents. basically. Yeah. Uh, Kazakhstan in percentage terms lost much many more people than Ukraine did. Probably about 40% of the Kazakhs were, were killed dur during collectivization in the Stalinist period, Again, which is an easy way to get yourself into a minority in your own country. Right. They were killed off during a forced collectivization by the Soviet yeah. Union, which resulted in man-induced famines exactly. of major proportions that got very little attention in the West. And still, most people, again, as you say, they've heard about it in Ukraine. They know that happened in the 1930s in Ukraine. The New York Times had a correspondent at that point, um, Walter Durante, yes. who denied it was taking place yeah. and won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, which I believe is still uh, on display at the New York Times headquarters in New York. But people do not know, there were no, nobody was report, very few people were reporting from that part of the world about the collectivization and Soviet-induced famines That's of right, the 1930s in Kazakhstan. Yeah, one, one of the reasons why we still know very little about it is because, you know, the Kazakhs, as you said, live in a dangerous neighborhood, and their main danger is Russia. I mean, they're a little bit concerned about what the Chinese are going to do in the long term. But right now, today, the big question for them is the Russian attempts to basically... Uh, subdue them under Putin's imperial ambitions. And as we saw in Ukraine, when the Ukrainians started talking about what they call the Holodomor, the politically induced famines, uh, the Russians get very upset and mm. take countermeasures. And the Kazakhs have, have taken another approach. Their approach have been to try to keep the Russians close. One actually former head of the think tank associated with the ruling party in Kazakhstan put it this way. He said, if you live close to a bear, you need to try to domesticate the bear. Mm. That's the term he used. And that's one of the reasons they speak very softly about these things. They don't make it a big political point. But instead, what they've tried to do while maintaining these nice and good relations with Russia, because after all, they still have a quarter of the population who are ethnic Russians, uh, so they have to be careful, is that they've tried to cultivate as many relationships with the rest of the world as possible. They have a kind of a hyperactive diplomacy. They, they're engaging in everything from uh, building the world's uh, uranium bank, for example, uh, and their nonproliferation has been one of their big things. They're, they're trying various ways to make themselves relevant and useful, hosting the Astana talks and the Syria peace process and things like that to put Kazakhstan on the map, to give everybody a vested interest in their continued existence so that they can somehow balance off the Russians with the support of everybody else. And, and I, I should mention when I was there and met with government officials, they tended to be of Kazakh background. Oh, yeah. But 
there is, as you say, the most significant minority are Russians, Russians holding often Kazakhstan citizenship. Uh, they played the role of advisor in a number of cases. They were next to people of great power. They may have enjoyed some power themselves, and they identified rather proudly as I'm a citizen of mm -hmm. Kazakhstan. Um, the other uh, historical note I think that's interesting to, to point out is this area of the world was looked upon by Stalin and before that by the czars as southern Siberia. It is just under Siberia. Right. Um, the northern part of it is incredibly cold. Uh, Astana, which is the capital and a fascinating place, which I may have time to talk about, I believe is the second in winter is the second coldest national capital in the world. I don't know which one would be colder. Ulaanbaatar is Maybe, what I was right, told. Yes. That, might, that might be in which is not Mongolia. Not too far away. You're a hop, skip, and a jump uh, from there. Um, Trotsky was in exile in Kazakhstan. Solzhenitsyn was in exile in Kazakhstan. And the whole Chechen nation. And the whole Chechen nation. That's the other thing. It's a very diverse country yeah. because Stalin sent Chechens, sent um, um, Tatars Germans. from the from the Crimeans, from the Crimea. He sent German ethnic Germans there. He sent all sorts of groups that he didn't quite trust. Sent them out to southern yep. Siberia. And there is a museum that I didn't get to see, but I wanted to, which was um, at the place where there had been a labor camp for, and this was what it was called, the wives of traitors to the homeland. Okay, if you can imagine, wives, in other words, they, they, they decide, Stalin would decide who is a traitor based on no evidence, send them to southern Siberia or Siberia, and then say, well, I can't leave their wives here. I'll have to send them somewhere. So camps were set up for them as well. A really remarkable thing. I know some of the Russians who are there, I met some of them, are the descendants of yep. these exiles who may have felt lucky that they weren't executed, may have felt lucky they survived sometimes terrible conditions in these camps, and some of them have gone back in Russia, and some of them never will. It's a really, kind of a remarkable thing. Well, I mean, if, for many Russians, it's, it's, it's almost as if, uh, you know, in Latvia, for example, or in other countries, being a Russian in Latvia or in Kazakhstan is probably gives you a better chance of a good life than being a Russian in Russia. And some people understand that. Some fall for the propaganda by the Russian TV and, you know, Putin's uh, machine. But many free thinkers figure out that life in Russia isn't that easy. Mm. Now, the president since independence has been Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. Yes. He was also essentially the Soviet regent pre-independence. Um, he has. He's an interesting person. I want you to talk about. But again, the other thing that we should just mention here is that after independence, oil, significant amounts of petroleum resources yes. were found in Kazakhstan that have not been found in the other stands, making it richer than others in a way. Uh, again, uh, the standard of living for a lot of people is not great. On the other hand, Astana, the capital we've talked about is a remarkable city that was reminiscent of Dubai and Las Vegas with buildings in the shapes of flowers and tents and water jugs and all sorts of strange things. I mean, a lot of money has been spent there. And down in Alma, uh, in Almaty, used to be called Alma-Ata in Soviet days, um, I stayed at a very nice Ritz-Carlton with a Bentley dealership. Uh, yes. On the first floor, some who's, uh, and with a mall nearby that had Gucci and Tiffany and all, 
Oh, now who's shopping in those places? I am not exactly sure, but you have saw signs of some tremendous wealth in this otherwise poor Central Asian country. Well, I mean, Central a- Kazakhstan was always richer than the rest of Central Asia, more industrialized even in the Soviet period. But definitely since independence, you've seen because of oil, but also because of a large uh, number of other mineral resources, uh, Kazakhstan was able to develop very quickly. I mean, it's not the other countries in Central Asia are considered developing countries uh, by their income level, but Kazakhstan is a middle-income country and has been since the mid to late 90s, I think. So it's always been better off, but definitely uh, what you notice today, uh, yes, as you put it, the new capital in Astana, was the capital was moved in 1997 from Almaty, particularly because the whole of the north of Kazakhstan was very Russian, ethnically, mm-hmm. and Almaty is in the very south of the country, but uh, paradoxically is ethnically a very Russian city in the south of the country mm. uh, because in the Soviet period, uh, the Russians would be focused on the capital, in the capital. But they moved the, the, the capital up north to make the north more Kazakh. But they, they must have spent $50 billion on building that capital. So Nazarbayev was saying, this is ours. This is our capital. Yes. Not coincidentally, the word Astana means Capital. Yes. They, they were making is like saying, "This is my dog. I call it dog." I mean, they're going to be very, you know, very clear. This is ours, and he, and although he is, Nazarbayev is often. I have heard him called the Putin whisperer. That he gets along with Putin. That he knows how to keep to, to, to keep relations good. But on that, he didn't want that chunk of territory in the north again, as you say, which had a heavy Russian population. He didn't want to see Putin say, yeah, you know what, I've got to support our people there. I'm going to take that. There's got to be some level of presence and resistance, if even passive, uh, that to dissuade that type of ideas. Now, the thing with, with Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan is he's the last, uh, after Uzbek president Islam Karimov died a year and a half ago, he is the last ruler of a Soviet republic to still be in power after 27 years of independence. Mm. Now, uh, Nazarbayev is, uh, as you as you mentioned, was uh, he was uh, appointed to rule Kazakhstan in the Soviet period in 1989. But the interesting twist to that is that uh, what happened three years before in 1986, the Russians, when Gorbachev had recently taken power, gained power in, in Moscow, was trying to get control over these republics because in the Brezhnev period, they had been very, it was very lax. They were running their their affairs pretty much as they wanted to. Gorbachev didn't want that. He wanted to basically restore control by the center. And then they actually tried to to appoint an ethnic Russian as Mm. the head of the Kazakhstan Republic. And there were riots uh, Mm. in Almaty in 1986. And it was a result of that that Nazarbayev was later put in as as a kind of a compromise candidate who would be able to represent the Kazakhs uh, and and soothe feelings there. So, uh, I I, ha- I think it's um, it's an he's a very interesting person among other because as I said earlier the the the, the chances of Kazakhstan at independence were looked pretty bad with this very fragmented population, uh, a enormous land border with Russia. I think only the 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 the, the American Canadian border is longer, mm, mm, uh, mm. which means that the, the ability of this construct that was a Soviet construct because there, there had never been a state before named Kazakhstan uh, was was very difficult. So he managed not only to make it survive but to build it into this uh, factor in international diplomacy and into a country that often has to make difficult compromises with Russia but nevertheless as you mentioned uh, is able to hold its own uh, against Russia, and sometimes Nazarbayev is able to say no to Putin. You can see the example of when uh, Russia created the uh, Eurasian Economic Union, and Kazakhstan joined because Nazarbayev had always been a promoter of cooperation in Eurasia, 
but he said publicly and to Putin's face two things. First, I don't know why we're in such a hurry to create this. Uh, and second, if this uh, moves from being an economic union to one with political um, superstructures, Kazakhstan will not join. Uh, and he said uh, Kazakhstan will actually leave such a union. And then when the Russians try to impose a, a common currency mm. uh, uh, within this Eurasian Economic Union, the Kazakhstan just blandly, the Kazakhs blandly, uh, bluntly uh, rejected that. Um, and you, you've seen, although they were part of this economic union, a kind of trade war under the surface between Kazakhstan and Russia, because what the Kazakhstanis found out is that the economic union meant that Russia uh, was flooding Kazakhstan's market with Russian goods, mm. uh, and because of the, the devaluation of the Russian currency in the last couple of years, they were cheap, and that wasn't good for Kazakh manufacturers. But the flip side is that the Russians were supposed to allow Kazakh goods into their market. Well, they didn't. They found different ways, different tariffs, different types of non-tariff uh, uh, barriers to trade to prevent the Kazakh goods from getting into their market. So uh, there is a tremendous... Um, I would say disappointment uh, in Kazakhstan of what this uh, close partnership with Russia has brought them. At the same time that they obviously realize that they are where they are and that they don't have uh, another choice but to deal with the Russians somehow. Uh, and I, I, the impression I got from diplomats was that no question Nazarbayev is wily, he's clever, he's been he's been he, he's done things in, in, in smart ways in order to pre preserve and protect the sovereignty of the country. Uh, the criticism of him falls on a number of areas, as you know. One is, he's 78, if I, if I, if I recall. Um, there's no clear successor to him. Like so many dictators, leaders, rulers, call them what you will, who have been in power a long time, they either are afraid to or don't like to say, okay, here's, what, here's, who, here's who's going to succeed me lest that happen more quickly <laughs> than they want. Uh, so there's fear that mm -hmm. when he passes from the scene, there could be turmoil and ways for Putin to, to, to get in there and do some, some nasty things. Uh, the other thing I, people talk about, certainly diplomats do, corruption. Uh, one diplomat said, yeah, they export two things from here, uh, petroleum and corruption. It's, it's just terrible. Um, I, I have no way to ascertain to what extent that's true, but certainly people talk about it as corrupt. And my guess is that the businessmen who come there from the U.S. say to the people at the embassy, it's not easy to do business mm -hmm. here. Um, those are, And those are problems for countries yeah. that are developing or even one that is sort of middle class but wants to develop further as Kazakhstan clearly does. That's right. No, I mean, and corruption is, is I think, primary among the, uh, the elements of the Soviet hangover because I, I think we don't really often – understand just how corrupt the Soviet system was. Yeah. Uh, the Soviet system essentially forced you to engage in corruption and crime to survive. You know, if you, because the Soviet system wasn't delivering to its people, um, you know, it was illegal to buy an apple for one ruble and to, se and to sell it for two rubles, right? That was considered speculation and therefore illegal. And there were so many examples of things that, that forced people to engage in semi-shady or criminal activity. And that that has very much permeated the entire bureaucracy. And obviously, you know, with the independencies, with new countries and people with power could ensconce themselves. And what you find everywhere, including in Kazakhstan, is this kind of fusion of political and economic power, that the people who own the assets in the economy are also the people who run the country's politics. Because as things were being privatized, remember the state owned everything in the communist period. Um, the people who 
held the keys to privatization also had the opportunity to get their family, their friends, and their relatives into positions where they would own the things that got privatized. So this is what we're still dealing with. Now, I think especially after the oil price turned down in 2014-15, Nazarbayev and the Kazakh leadership realized that two things. First, uh, oil was good for Kazakhstan, but they can't build their future on oil. You can't get to the next level of being a developed modern society through oil, um, and second, that they have to deal with the corruption, which probably means that you tell the guys who've made a lot of money through corruption that you've had your fun, we're not going to take it away from you, but two things, please stop stealing, and second, you have to reinvest some of your proceeds into the economy. I think that's what's happening across several states of this region. Uh, and what we're also seeing is that the Kazakhs are actually themselves doing things like trying to join the OECD. Uh, and getting closer to Western organizations that impose certain types of behavior on them because mm -hmm. then they anchor certain rules and regulations that they realize that they need, but they also know that domestically there will be resistance among the elite to try to adopt these rules. So you have to have some kind of external lever that is going to help you uh, get these reforms done. And Nazarbayev uh, clearly wants good, solid relations with the U.S. Uh, I, from what I can tell, President Obama was not very interested in Central Asia. President Trump, however, has met in Washington with Nazarbayev. They've yes. had, ex had fairly extensive conversations, uh, apparently. Among other things, um, I, I assume President Trump is aware that this is a major oil-producing country. I also am sure he knows that it's a staging point, at least, for um, our troops in Afghanistan. Afghanistan, as Pakistan may still be the main one, but things come through there and he wants that to remain the case. Yes, you're looking dubious. No, that, no, no, you're right. I think the other thing which this administration is probably beginning to pay attention to, which the previous administration didn't, is the fact that Kazakhstan and the rest of Central Asia is home to secular Muslim states. Yes. These are Muslim countries, but which have secular laws, a secular education. Uh, and secular uh, political systems. And that's something very important. Very often in the past, the fact that they were pretty heavy-handed against um, especially radical Islamists, but they defined that very broadly. So non-traditional Muslim groups and also non other religious groups were treated in a pretty heavy-handed way. And there are a lot of things you could criticize about that. But the fact is that they are, they're trying to build something that maintains one of the few things that the Soviets actually did that was positive for them, which was to install uh, you know, a modern scientific approach to life rather than one based on the obscurantist ideas that dominate in the Middle East. And the paper you, you've written goes into this in, in some detail It is in, in terms of having a secular c country and what that actually means and the U.S. approach to that. Now, um, Mike Pence, for example, all, who the vice president, also spoke to Nazarbayev, and uh, I, I don't think it's a secret. He said to him, I hope you're going to maintain religious freedom in this country. There was concern on his part and the part of the uh, State Department about some new laws that would be seen as more restrictive of religious freedom, particularly of the uh, what we might call the non-traditional religions right. in the country. In other words, the traditional religions being Islam of a moderate nature, yeah. Russian Orthodoxy, but Jehovah's Witnesses and Baha'i and evangelicals and Protestants. The again, there's a there's a synagogue and it's an operational synagogue and in Astana and uh, it's a small Jewish community, but it's not a particularly persecuted Jewish community. Um, and I, full disclosure here, I went there as a commissioner for the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, served two years in that post. It's an independent commission, but it took the same view as, the, as, as Mr. Pence and uh, the State Department. Um, 
fact-finding, but also saying to government officials, we essentially, uh, we hope you'll continue to be a leader on the issue of religious freedom. Um, we've talked to various religious leaders in the country, as we did, of all sorts, Lutheran, Catholic, everything. They're worried about these laws and would prefer that you don't do them. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, um, at, a, with, at a meeting with, the, uh, with some very senior officials, they said, well, these laws are still under revision. You haven't seen the most recent version. I think it's much better than you are, have been led to believe. And we said, can we have a look at it? Can the embassy have a look at it? They said, absolutely. As we're recording this show and as I wrote my column a few weeks ago, they had not done so. But uh, diplomats tell me that could be a good sign. Mm -hmm. It may be that this is going to be allowed to just sort of blow away with the wind and not come back. I don't know for sure. Um, but we'll see. But I also, anyhow, I'm interested in any of your thoughts no, on any of that. But, but the, then, then the yeah. one thing I think is important to note is that Kazakhstan didn't have problems with uh, Islamic terrorism or radicalism in the early days of independence. Those were further to the south. In Tajikistan, which had a civil war yes. that jihadis were part of fighting, very much connected to Afghanistan, whereas, you know, much of northern uh, Afghanistan is populated by Tajiks, so there was a lot of cross-border connections. In Uzbekistan, the same thing. Uh, Kazakhstan was fine. They thought they were good. So they were, they had a relatively lax attitude, whereas Uzbekistan, of course, was the one that clamped down hardest on non-traditional religion. Now, and Uzbekistan was exporting a lot of of, of, of jihadis. To they that, were in the, in the early 90s, yeah. yes. Uh, but the interesting thing, if you fo- fast forward 15, 20 years, is that Uzbekistan hasn't had an act of terrorism on its territory since for 13, 14 years now. Um, whereas in the West, we were all telling them, look, by repressing the jihadis and all non-traditional religion, you're only alienating people, you're only worsening the problem. Well, if you're sitting in Kazakhstan, suddenly um, in 2011 and then 2015-16, you start seeing homegrown terrorist cells with connections to Afghanistan, to the North Caucasus, to Syria. The Western people are telling you to be more liberal, but you look across your border in Uzbekistan and you see that the hard line approach seems to have worked. Maybe the Westerners are telling you repression is counterproductive. doesn't seem to be the case in Uzbekistan. So if you're in Kazakhstan, the temptation to clamp down uh, and, and have greater levels of state control over religion is very hard to resist. And I think that's the reason why you're seeing this. At the same time, you know, it's also the fact that Nazarbayev's power is built upon the social contract, which is one. Uh, through oil, we'll deliver a good standard of living and, most important, we deliver stability. Now, if oil price goes down and terrorist actions start to happen in the country, then that social contract is not really there anymore, right? Which means that the the urge, again, to restore control and and they think they can do that by restrictive measures, uh, I think that's where that's coming from. Then probably there, are, there is, there is, I'm quite sure, a uh, debate, discussion, maybe even a struggle within the government about whether these new laws are the w- right way to go. And that's why I think it's very important for U.S. policy and for European nations not simply to say, you guys are repressive, you're authoritarian, we don't like you, which very often seems to be the way we approach them by, you know, lecturing at them, but saying, okay, we, we are, I would say, Tell them that you, you try to understand what they're trying to do, but that maybe you should re- reconsider some of the things you're, or the instruments by which you're trying to do that would be probably more fruitful. And this brings us to what is probably our last subject, but I do want to spend a few minutes on it. It's important, and it's also m- the major theme in the paper that you've written on Kazakhstan, or a major theme certainly, and one that I think would be useful for Sam Brownback, the new um, ambassador for international religious freedom to look at. It would be useful for the State Department and not least for USERF, U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, 
to, to consider because your argument is that secularism is a good thing. It's good for a country. But there's not just one model for secularism. Right. We should look at several models for secularism. Um, to take one example, the model in France is rather different than the model in the U.S. Yeah. Are we really sure that the model in France is not as good and in some situations, some cultures, perhaps it is better? I think this is not a debate that has been had no. to a significant extent within the State Department or within USERF. No, I think the so, – so to take it very quickly, the, the U.S. model is based on the idea that you promote individual religious freedom. Um, the pilgrims, people came from repression of religious freedom in Europe and found in the United States uh, an ability to exercise their, their faith the way they liked. Uh, can I, I'm going to yeah. ask you for one second because I think there's an important point here that a lot of people don't uh, don't understand, Americans don't understand, and, and that is this. People like to say pe that Europeans or people from all over the world came here for religious freedom. They didn't exactly. They came here so that they wouldn't be persecuted. Right. In many cases, they were perfectly happy to persecute any other group they thought was wrong. Well, if you look at what happened in New England in that period, definitely. Precisely. If you were it a was, Quaker in New England, you, it was not a lot of fun. It was an intellectual evolution over time yeah. to go from we came here not to be persecuted by people who have a bad idea of religion. We have the right one, but we will persecute others who are also wrong to saying, you know what? This is a big country. It just makes – it's just practical. If I don't kill you and you don't kill me – Maybe that's better. Now, that may mean the Mormons go out to Utah to get away from people who don't like them. But it's a different view, the view of religious freedom, tolerance, live and let live. That was not the original view. It was an evolved was view an intellectual. Evolved view. So yeah. we, we, it's important for us to understand that. We, we, yeah. there, were, there were seeds of it planted by the founders, no question and about it. And especially in New York with the in Dutch traditions that came well, With way. the Dutch traditions and the idea we will not establish a religion exactly. for this country. That's in the First Amendment. Hugely important. But that is still not quite the same th way people understand it. So, but the difference is that the French system uh, emerged because in, in an environment dominated by Catholicism, mm -hmm. which is very different from from the American model where there was not one big religious community that had political power, the papacy, and that was threatening to mm. sit as a big, you know, umbrella over your political system and dominate everything. That's what the French secular laicite, as they call it in France, the mm -hmm. French system was meant to protect the state and society from religion, not to facilitate individual religious freedom. Mm. Uh, and that is why if you look at the Muslim countries that have adopted secularism, on the one hand, many of them are fr former French colonies, Tunisia, Senegal, West African countries. But even those like Turkey or the ones in, in, in Central Asia like Kazakhstan, it's very much the same model. They also are dealing with one dominant religious tradition that is very politicized, Sunni Islam. Mm. Uh, and it, in their case, also external forces. Well, in France, the papacy may have been an external force too. But it, it, certainly in Turkey or in Central Asia, it's from the Arab world and from uh, religious movements that are alien to their society that try to dominate them and to tell them how to run their affairs and to impose an Islamic state, etc. And therefore, if they look at a secular model, they find the French model much more amenable to what they are trying to do than the U.S. model. The U.S. model said, hey, there's nothing wrong with religious freedom, which would mean let different religious Muslim groups, you know, have an open competition for the for the souls of the nation. Well, if you do that, then Hezbollah Tahrir and a lot of jihadi groups from the Middle East will, will come in, especially because in Central Asia, because of 70 years of Soviet atheism, they don't even know what their own religion is. So if somebody comes from the Arab world, tell them this is real Islam, a lot of young people might be willing to believe that. And then suddenly, very quickly, you have the whole fabric of your society changing, and they were not going to allow that. 
So laïcité, the French version of this, essentially says in in the public square, there can be people of different religions, but you don't push your religion too much. We're not going to let a woman whose face is covered come into a bank and and withdraw money. That's going too that's too far for for religious. Or in the case of Kazakhstan, for example, uh, you're you're allowed to proselytize theoretically, but you're not allowed to proclaim the the supremacy of or that that one religion is better than another. That's illegal in the country to, Mm. to prevent these type of foreign missionaries, mainly Muslim one, but also Christian missionaries from coming in in this vulnerable post-Soviet, post-atheist phase and and try to, so to speak, take over. And where it gets particularly tricky, a lot of these countries will say, and the U.S. will say, will will reinforce this, sure, any group that is violent, any group that advocates or justifies terrorism, you you, you want to repress. We get that. That's okay. Um, But if they don't do that, then you have to be okay with them. The p- problem is, you mentioned Hezbollah, which is a fairly well-known group in a lot of places, outlawed in Germany, as a matter of yes. fact. It doesn't advocate violence. It does advocate for a caliphate. And what people will say, I heard this in Kazakhstan, is this is a gateway group to jihadism. Yes. Once you buy their doctrines of the need for a caliphate and the end to sovereign nations, then you think, well, how do I accomplish that? The Quran says, I do it through the sword. I do it through jihad. So we're uncomfortable with these kinds of organizations that are one step not, that are not jihadists, but are clearly Islamists. So the thing is, we draw the distinction between whether they advocate for violence or use violence or not. Um, But in the Muslim world, this is an artificial distinction. First of all, because they don't have brass plaques on their doors saying, I'm the guy who is violent or I'm the guy who's not violent. That's a distinction we have created. But if you look for them, the what's important is the end goal and the ideology. And that's the same thing you could see that, you know, the discussion about whether the Muslim Brotherhood is a, is a uh, violent movement or not. Well, parts of it are violent, parts of it are not. How do, you, how do you tell? Or even the distinction between moderate and radical Islam is something we have also created. For example, Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, uh, this is the, the flag bearer of, of so-called moderate Islam. But when he started developing his ambitions in the Middle East and in Syria, suddenly you saw Turkey allying with groups that were by far not only radical, but also violent. So the distinction is one we have created, and they are also very smart at gaming our system and using it against us, which is what you see Hizbut Tahrir doing. This is an organization based in London. It, its end goal is exactly the same as Al-Qaeda or ISIS, the creation of a caliphate, but they, they want to do it in, over the long term. They think Al-Qaeda and ISIS are just a little too hasty, you know. A little adventurous. Yeah, they want to do it the slow way. They want to do it the organic way, so to speak. But at the end of the day, no Jew is ever going to be able to be allowed to live in in a caliphate, and I don't think any Christians either. Uh, So it's basically going to be a situation where if you don't want to be part of what they peacefully will tell you that is a new system, you're going to be in very serious trouble. And in any case, how do you even achieve that caliphate without uh, violent means is one that Hizbut Tahrir has never answered. But this is just one of many groups. And the point is the ideology... The uh, radical Islamic ideology comes in different flavors. It comes in those that are overtly violent, but at the end of the day, the very ideology is based upon violence against others. Uh, And that's why countries that are affected by them have to be a little bit more careful than we are from our perch telling them where to draw the distinctions. So if President Trump or Vice President Pence or uh, Ambassador Brownback 
or to hear this show and call you into their office and say, look, I've only got a couple of minutes for you. What are you advising me to do? What would you say? I would tell them that what you have going on in Central Asia is something very interesting, which is that you have the largest number of secular states in the Muslim world. Now, if you take a big picture, you can see that across the rest of the Muslim world, particularly the Middle East, the sectarian warfare and the, the fusion of politics and religion has been a disaster for this region. Let that play out for a few more years. People are going to look for something else. They're going to look back to what people like Kemal Ataturk in Turkey were looking to, which is secularism to, pr to safeguard not only the political system, but to safeguard religion itself, because religion gets destroyed by this, you know, politicization that has been happening. Uh, and there... Countries of Central Asia could, at some point in the future, be a model for the whole of the rest of the Muslim world. Now, that doesn't mean they're getting everything right today. They are erring on the side of too much restriction and sometimes on repressive measures. So what you want to do is to help them get it right and not condemn what they're trying to achieve wholesale because they're trying to achieve something which is very much uh, in accordance with Western interests, namely a part of the Muslim world that is based on rationality and uh, legal systems and education that are secular. Uh, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. In other words, help them fix it and get it right. But to do that, you have to make them understand that you appreciate what they're trying to achieve, if, even if you disagree with some of the tools they're using. Svante Cornell, I think this has been a fascinating conversation. It certainly has been for me. I guess it has been for any listener who's still there. It's a part of the world most people don't know much about. Um, but now they know a little more, and we hope to have you on again to talk about other issues in the future. So thank you, Svante Cornell. Thank you. Anytime. It's a pleasure. And thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.